Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get back to uh, the strike because we're getting red headlines across the Bloomberg terminal now um, from Sean Fain's Facebook Live presentation. He says the United Auto Workers Union is going to expand its strike, but only against General Motors and Stellantis. They're not going to expand their strike against Ford. Now, um, I'm not sure what's going to happen to Bronco production. I'm sure a lot of people want to know about that. Uh, so I'll find out and, and get back to you on it. But they are going to expand their strike against GM and Stellantis. We have Kevin Tynan standing by on the phone, Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, uh, U.S. Autos Analyst. Wait, is he, is he there? He's yeah, there. He's yeah, there. Okay. Um, yeah. Good. He's on camera. He's we not even him. on the phone. Did you hire him? Probably. Congratulations. He's very good. Uh, Kevin, what do you think about this? So um, it seems like they're getting along a little better with Bill Ford now. And historically, they do get along better with the Ford uh, Motor Company because of the Ford family and because of Bill, really. Um, With GM and Stellantis, they still have serious beef. How do you read it? Yeah, I mean, using it as leverage, right? Saying um, by expanding for Stellantis and GM and holding the line on Ford, uh, probably motivates, you know, the, the competitors to get in there and be a little bit more aggressive with, with their negotiating in terms of what they're willing to give. Um, but, but um, you know, it, it's, it's not over yet. You know, there's still probably a ways to go. And, and you know, things like this might mean the biggest issues or the easiest issues, the low-hanging fruit is handled, but it's probably going to be in the details uh, before anything is really agreed to across the board. Hey, Kevin, is there, like, you probably done, I'm sure you've done the analysis. When does this strike start to hurt them financially, the big three? Um, it's weeks, not, you know, not days, obviously. And, and keep in mind, too, there's, there was a buildup of inventory ahead. Um, so there are units on the ground. Um, and you could think of it of a little bit of a working capital shift from one quarter to the next, unless it gets you know, very long. The last one was 40 days in 2019 against General Motors, and that's significant, right? So, um, and historically, even though inventory is above where it was a year ago, it's still very low historically. I think I calculated it out to start September was probably about 43 days of inventory for the industry as a whole, and typically 55 to 65 days is considered manageable. So it's below what's considered, you know, a, a healthy level. Uh, and, and at the worst, these the domestic automakers, they would have 80, 90 days supply in some months. So significantly off that, but um, but not as bad as it was prior to the to the pandemic. 
In terms of job security, I mean, we know that they're asking for pay rises, obviously. Um, they also want a pension, a pension, which is seems less likely, although I'd love to hear your take. A four-day work week, which is like, nice. there's no way in hell, right? Um, and But they want actual job security. So from GM, there's a ton of cars coming. You know, new production. Mary Barra says they won't need fewer workers for electric vehicles. There's just a massive offering there. From Stellantis, not so much. I mean, they have a couple brands that seem like they're about to die out. Yeah, look, and I think it's it's the the line of sight is pretty clear, right? So the automakers have made a lot of money in the past couple of years, not even just through the last contract, but probably over the last decade. And it's very easy for the union to point to that and say, we want our share of that. You've been very profitable due to the concessions we've given over the last couple of contracts all the way through the bankruptcy period. Um, and it's and it's not going to be easy for the manufacturers to to hide that right that you can see that money every day uh, in every filing, but at the same time the manufacturers can look at the unions and say, but look at our production, look at our sales, volume is way down from the 2017 peak in this country. U.S. sales in 2017 were 17 and a half million. We're running at a 15.4. So I think it's going to be the manufacturers pointing to that and telling the union, we can't give you a whole lot of job security. This market is smaller and it's gonna to continue to be smaller. Transaction prices will be higher, margins will be better, the money will be there, but we can't guarantee capacity and headcount going forward. We need that flexibility. And then on pensions um, and healthcare, you know, the, the manufacturers have a very easy time of directing the eye of the union to, that's what we were bankrupt, remember in 20, 2009 and 2010, and that's the structure we had, right? So two of those three things are, are a little bit easier for the manufacturer to explain away. Uh, the money is not. So I think when, it, when all is said and done, the likelihood is that the manufacturers pay up, but they want that, f that flexibility to adjust the cost structure going forward. And I think, you know, the, um, the pension and healthcare going back to the way it was uh, in prior to, to the bankruptcy period is just a non-starter. I don't even think that gets discussed in any seriousness. <laughs> so I didn't believe you, Kevin, a couple of years ago when you said the industry was going to go from a mode of 17, 17 and a half million production down to, you know, something materially less like 15 and a half or something like that. But once again, you were right. Um, <laughs> and that, do you think the union believes that? Well, here's the thing, right, is that is that you have to look at at least one other input, right? Everybody wants to talk about volume and the headline of 17 and a half versus 15.4, but, but revenue per unit matters, right? So while production and sales are down, average transaction price is at a record, right? Yep. We're heading to $50,000. So when you multiply out just back of the envelope, the revenue pool is actually larger. So you know, you have to understand that not every unit is the same as every other unit. You know, a $20,000 Toyota Corolla is not a $65,000 F-150. And this, this industry is moving towards the latter to say, we just want to sell as many $65,000 things as we can. We're willing to give up the bottom mm. of that market. It means our volume goes away, but really the revenue pool and the revenue contribution and the profit contribution and your margins are just way better. And I think that's what this industry becomes going forward. 
By the way, on that note, I wanted originally I was planning on talking with you about the Jeep Grand Wagoneer Obsidian Series Three that I'm driving right now. <laughs> um, you know, before this hard news crashed the party, but. That is an extremely expensive vehicle. It's the biggest vehicle Jeep has ever made. Um, the one I'm driving is $114,000, $115,000 in this trim. And though I love the new Hurricane 510, the inline six, it's amazing. 510 horsepower, 500 pound-feet of torque. For the same price, you can get a Range Rover or a BMW X7, the M60 version or a Cadillac Escalade, the ultra super luxury platinum version. Like, why is are they selling these hundred and thirteen, hundred fourteen thousand dollar Jeeps? Yeah, I mean, and look, the the average on Grand Wagoneer, I just looked it up, is one hundred and five thousand is the average, you know, sales weighted. Um, you know, but that's right there with Expedition. It's there with Suburban. That's what, you know, those have become. The profit centers because you're sharing platform and components with pickup trucks um, and now you're just adding content that's pure profit so you know that's kind of my point is that look if you sell one of those how many you know uh, dodge darts did you have to sell <laughs> to get anywhere near that and you probably lost money on every dodge dart which is why it doesn't exist anymore you know so so the old world they got the hornet like, coming hey, out yeah, well, the old world would be like run production on Hornet all day long and then figure out how to sell it. And it's like the new model is going to be, hey, if we can sell one or two Grand Wagoneers, we can cut production of, of Hornet, which is why I say in this contract negotiation, you know, the manufacturers need to protect that flexibility going forward, yep. saying this is going to be a smaller market because we're selling more expensive things. That's a, it's, I tell you, if, if I were an investor, I'd be like, I like this auto industry better than the old auto industry. Yeah, for sure. This industry is more, more profitable. And that's what Kevin has been telling us for years. That's where it's going. I but if you're him. a UAW worker, no, you would that not feel not that good. way. No, yeah. absolute opposite. Uh, Kevin Tiny, thanks so much for joining us. Kevin is our lead auto analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Now, uh, yesterday, Paul and I were talking uh, with a gentleman who said, you know, one of the big problems in terms of battery production is that a lot of the stuff is mined elsewhere mm -hmm. and then yep. most of it is processed oh boy in china yep china china so um our next guest uh is hoping to change that a little bit navade alam joins us he's president and ceo of evolution and they are working on a um i guess a cobalt processing plant in yuma arizona nice. uh, which should supply when it's up to speed about a million batteries what a year nevade is that an annual figure that you want to be a uh, cobalt for a million batteries a year yes that's correct matt uh one million a year um you know right now there's 30 cobalt processing facilities in china and zero in north america 
So, you know, we, we need to catch up here. That's, uh, and, you know, luckily we started this process a few years ago before the um, IRA and the other laws, and now we're catching a nice tailwind. So it's going really do you, well. Do you get any financing benefits from that, tax breaks from that legislation? I mean, are there subsidies that you can take advantage of here? Yeah, absolutely. Though I will say we were going to do this uh, plant without those subsidies, but it's a great help for us, for sure. So how much are you going to spend to build this plant? I know that uh, Yuma, because I read in a local newspaper, expects to have a ton of uh, revenue sort of as a, as a knock-on effect, yeah. jobs and everything. Um, but how much are you going to spend to build it and when are you going to be done making it? Ballpark around $300 million and it'll be done in 2026, we think. All right. So what actually happens at a cobalt processing facility and how does that how's that part of the whole battery situation so cobalt is a really important metal uh for ev batteries uh, for thermal regulation and for energy density and for uh you know giving you long range and good cold weather performance it's also extremely important in uh, aerospace and defense it's used in hypersonic missiles and stealth bombers so it's a really critical uh material uh, for, for the United States to have uh, self-sufficiency in. Um, so what we do is we take um, cobalt hydroxide. So already processed cobalt that is processed in Africa, and then it'll come here to the United States instead of going to China. Um, and you know what the Chinese do is they just process it there and then send it back to the United States for the uh, cars here, such as Tesla and other uh, electric uh, automakers. But we we want to skip the China step, just bring it straight here to America, process it into cobalt sulfate, which is the salt that goes into the cathode portion of the EV battery, and uh, sell it to the new plants that have been announced in the United States by um, General Motors, LG, uh, Samsung, Ford. You know, they're spending billions of dollars building these, uh, what they call battery precursor plants uh, they're going to use get nickel uh, sulfate cobalt sulfate manganese sulfate and put it all together and make a battery pack now i've seen um i guess a rendering of the plant in in yuma and one of the things you immediately notice paul check this out yeah a giant solar yeah. facility, <laughs> even bigger than the actual um, processing plant. So I know you guys want to be uh, carbon neutral. This is all going to be powered by the sun? Yes, indeed. Um, Yuma County is the sunniest county in the United States. So it's <laughs> it's pretty easy, we think, to, to do the uh, full-on solar power, 100% solar, no greenhouse gases, no propane, no diesel. Um, so... We also are, are going to be benefiting the local farmers by selling them back some of our excess solar production at uh, cost. They're losing a lot of hydro uh, power from the lower levels on the Colorado River. So they're very excited about our um, coming in and uh, building this facility there. Well, I, I heard that, you know, you like Yuma not only because I guess apparently your wife is from Yuma. For one thing, that's right. Um, it's yeah, also very smart. sunny, uh, <laughs> yeah. low, low cost of living, low regulatory kind of hassle um, there. But it's close to like all the used batteries coming back out of California is what I read. So are you recycling uh, cobalt there? 
We will. We, we intend to recycle as well. So, you know, our first um, phase is to build a sulfate uh, facility, which is um, sort of, I think, the easy easier thing. It's a very established technology around the world. As I said, there's 30 of these plants in China. And then as, as more and more um, batteries are spent and used up, we want to recycle some of those into uh, turning them around and getting the cobalt back out of them. And then lastly, we want to add a um, cobalt metal facility for uh, aerospace and defense. So that's part of the strategic reserve announced by the president under the Defense Production Act. How do you think you will be able to compete against the Chinese? They obviously have much greater scale, presumably government support to some level. How do you think about the competitive environment? Well, you know, there is no cobalt mined in China either. They they all take it out of Africa. So gotcha. we're competing with them in Africa. We're going to bring it here instead of taking it to China. And so logistically, we save money. The other great thing about Yuma County and where we are it's right on the border of uh, California and Mexico, so we're going to come through the port of Long Beach or the port of Ensenada with our inputs. So, and it's only three hours by truck from Ensenada or Long Beach. So, I think logistically it's a great spot. We're on Interstate 8. We're on uh, the UP Railroad. So we we picked it also because logistics are important in these in these kinds of uh, deals. What um, is it, I mean from a competitive perspective again? Can you will you be competing on price to your customers here? Can you because of the the lower presumably the lower logistics cost of nothing else? Compete, right, it doesn't have to ship all price. the way from yeah. China. Yeah, well, look, it's it's a combination of price, and we would have been competing on price initially, but uh, more now. There's uh, tariffs on Chinese sulfate. There's the IRA uh, regulations about Chinese um, inputs that come in uh, to the EV battery supply chain. You know, there, there's a lot of new laws that are sort of helping us compete on price. So we may be able to charge a higher price than we might have ordinarily, you know, if there were none of these laws. All right, it's, a, I think, a fascinating yeah, story, cool. and we're finally starting to see movement. Uh, Maybe on... it's because it's climate week, and we saw a bunch of these folks this week. No, I mean, I mean in terms of bringing processing here because yes. Navade, I don't know uh, how much you talk with other people in the kind of battery supply chain, but I imagine we must be trying to bring a lot more processing of cobalt, lithium and rare earths to the U.S. at some point, right? Yes, it's all it's all happening. It's it's hundreds of billions of dollars of investment, uh, real you know team effort, lots of big corporations. Uh, as I mentioned, LG, General Motors, Samsung, they've announced Billion-dollar plants in Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee, even Arizona. LG is building in a five-and-a-half-billion-dollar plant uh, just up the road uh, in Phoenix, just south of Phoenix. So that that you know is going to help us sell our product into the United States. Yeah. So it's it's moving. Yeah. The infrastructure, the supply Absolutely. chain is moving here. That's right. All right, Navade. Thanks so much for joining us, Navade Alam. He is a president and CEO of. Evolution, uh, they're in getting into the battery business and the processing of all the cobalt and all that kind of stuff. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
It is United Nations General Assembly Week here in New York, and uh, we got Unga. lots of Unga, lots of stuff happening, lots of terrible traffic. But one of the key areas is Russia and various sanctions on Russia as it relates to the Ukraine war. One area that is going to come up for discussion uh, very soon is going to be ban on Russian diamonds. Uh, so we want to get to the bottom of that, and we can do that with our next guest, Ankur Daga, CEO of Angara. Um, and Ankur, thanks so much for joining us again here. Um, talk to us about, just remind us what you do at Angara. Sure. So at Angara, we are a vertically integrated online jeweler. So we do everything from cutting and polishing gemstones to designing jewelry to manufacturing jewelry to retailing over the web in over 30 countries. All right. So... I had, All right, so I had a question on a slightly different, before we get into that business, on a slightly different thing. I always kind of wonder, um, isn't Wharton the grad school? No. And I see some people who do the undergraduate thing at Wharton, but isn't that Penn? Uh, yes, yeah, so Wharton is one of the schools in Penn, uh, but it is undergrad and grad school. All right, so you go to Wharton, uh, you study finance there and entrepreneurship, then you go get your MBA from Harvard. I've heard of it. Um, Trade school. And then you decide, I'm going to become a jeweler? Yeah, so uh, interestingly, I grew up in the jewelry business, so I've kind of played with gemstones since the age of five. Uh, I always thought I would never come into the industry because it is pretty antiquated uh, and old-fashioned, as you can imagine. Uh, But after Wharton, I went to McKinsey. My largest project was turning around a major jewelry retailer, and that's when I fell in love with the trade again. I saw a lot of opportunity, especially online. Uh, So here we are. So, So... you could have just gone straight to the jewelry business. You didn't need to stop. You didn't need to stop at McKinsey. Uh, you didn't need to stop at Harvard, right? But what did you learn at those places that gave you an edge now in this business? So I think the industry is one of the most fragmented industries out there. So when you compare it to any other part of retail, um, the, so for example, Signet, which is the number one jeweler in the U.S., only has less than 10% market share. You compare it to something like a Best Buy, which has a much more dominant position. So the idea was how do we structure the industry in a way that allows us to get to that scale where we can really dominate the industry. All right. So one of the news items that you and I were talking about before is Russia. Russia supplies a lot of diamonds and they're going to, I guess the G7 is going to put some sanctions on it or something like that? What's, what's happening there? Yeah, so in a couple of weeks, there's likely to be a ban announced, and the ban would be for all Russian diamonds. So just as a precursor to this, April 2022, the Biden administration is issued an executive order to ban Russian diamonds. So this has already been done by the U.S. and U.K. The key difference here is twofold. One is instead of two countries, it's seven countries. And second, and I think far more importantly, is the previous ban was only on rough. Now the thing is, for rough diamonds, uh, those get exported typically from Russia to India, China, or Antwerp. Uh, And in this case, the cutting and polishing happens in those centers, and those are then substantially transformed goods, so they are no longer considered Russian diamonds. So that previous ban really had no teeth. This is very different because they're thinking about uh, prohibiting cutting and polished Uh, Russian diamonds from entering any of the G7, which is really 65% of the total uh, market demand. This is what we do with Russian goods. that We want to put sanctions on them so you know we're serious. But they can send the goods to India or China to get finished, and then we'll buy them. Yeah, like oil. 
Exactly. Yeah. All right, so how, how big is Russia in terms of a how big is Russia in terms of being a supplier? So Russian diamond market is roughly four billion. There was four billion in exports back in 2021 before the war. Um, just as, you know, just to compare that to the overall GDP, overall uh, Russian GDP in 2021 was 1.7 trillion. So you're really talking about 0.2 percent of yep. the market. Yep. And, and to the previous point, it is more optics than reality because 0.2 percent is a pretty small part of the the overall market to change all right so w where where do you typically get your diamonds um so we typically buy from site holders which are the uh customers of de beers so typically botswana and sort is our number one source so we started avoiding russian diamonds back in 2022 when the ban in the u.s was announced preemptively um, so for us it doesn't really affect us because we don't source russian diamonds in any case uh, how fungible are these stones i mean how um, would you know if a diamond came, you know, cut, polished, finished out of Russia? It doesn't have any kind of like microchip inside it. There's no tag, right? It, it's hard. And that's why this ban is going to be especially difficult to enforce. But the idea behind it is really implementing blockchain technology and ledger systems throughout the supply chain to be able to figure out what's coming from Russia versus elsewhere. And honestly, I think it's actually kind of great because all of a sudden traceability becomes enforced in the diamond industry, which is great. So we could we can make sure we don't get any conflict diamonds, blood diamonds and the like. Talk to us about the diamond market today. How's, how's it been over the last year or two? Or is it, are diamonds more expensive, less expensive? So natural diamonds have been getting crushed. So really? since their peak uh, in mid-2022, uh, they are down roughly 35 to 50% in Why terms is that? of value. Um, a few reasons. One is that there is a natural lack of demand in China as well as the U.S., which are the two major consumers of diamonds. Um, and uh, people are going out a lot more. They're eating out, traveling, and a lot of that consumption power is going there. But I think the bigger issue is lab-grown diamonds. And you guys do lab-grown diamonds, right? We have launched lab-grown. Uh, and so a, a few interesting statistics on lab-grown. Back in 2018, it was like 2% of the market. Uh, this last year, 36% of engagement rings sold were lab-grown engagement rings. Wow. Over half of current diamond distribution in the U.S. is lab-grown. So really, they've taken off. It's a perfect substitute, chemically, physically, optically the same, at discounts ranging anywhere from 75 to 90% of their natural wow. equivalents. <laughs> so and basically, you can't tell the difference. I get my wife a lab-grown diamond, uh, you know, if I give her a two-carat honker on a platinum <laughs> ring, she will be just as pleased as if I gave her like a, a real blood diamond? Uh, well, not a blood diamond per se, but a natural diamond, yes, let's yes, call it. Yes. Yeah, so absolutely. It, and she takes it down to Wilson Jewelers and Scarsdale, they're not going to know the difference. They will not. The only way you can know the difference is if you send it to the GIA or IGI or another certification lab. And there's small traces of nitrogen in uh, natural diamonds that do not exist in labrador that's really the only way you'll be able to wow, tell the difference but amazing. visually you can't tell. i'm never buying a real diamond again <laughs> yeah i mean boy if i'd known that back in the day um <laughs> they didn't have right. them that good i know i know day. i yeah. know i know trust me ankur daga thanks so much for joining us ankur daga ceo of angara Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle.
Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk med tech. Boston Scientific, I have no idea what they do, but it's a big company. It's like $80 billion in market cap. The stock's up 16%. Don't they make uh, medical hardware? Medical devices, right? Stuff. Yeah, stuff. Yeah. Stuff that, you know, so it's medical devices. Matt Hendrickson, he knows what they do. He's a senior equity analyst covering the med tech business uh, with Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, Boston Scientific, just give me the 30 seconds. What do they do and why do we care? Yeah, they, they make stuff. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like but stints, it, right? Yeah, do they it, make stints? It started off with stents and then it turned yeah. into heart valves. It turns into and what some of the products we'll probably talk about is the Watchman device, which goes into the heart. Um, they create catheters and then they go into endoscopy. So single use scopes uh, to help with um, you know various um, endoscopic procedures. All right. So like Splunk. Splunk, right. except well, for, for people. Yeah. Splunk for people. Okay, <laughs> now that makes sense. I get it now. During the pandemic, hospitals were overloaded with just dealing with COVID patients. So people weren't doing surgeries and procedures and things like that. And that's not good for a company like uh, Boston Scientific or Medtronic or something like that, right? No, they need procedural volume, especially in the cardiology side, to um, you know, get their organic revenue growth, which is kind of the key driver for their valuation. Um, all those aspects, once the hospital beds were filled with COVID patients, they couldn't do heart procedures. Um, that, that's mostly in the back sure, know, rear yep. view mirror. So now are, are we back to more normalized if anything, activity? If anything, we're kind of going still through kind of this backlog. So we're kind of okay. getting an extra tailwind. In Revenge to operations, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to revenge travel, although surely that uh, is happening. I mean, it must be happening. Well, someone, I mean, for Boston, I mean, someone who can probably wait a year or two for a procedure. Now they're going back to their doctor like, hey, I'm, I'm ready now. Yep. And, you know, the doctor's like, great, we need the volume. We need to make our money. So come on in. All right. So Boston Scientific had an investor day. What was kind of the message they wanted to get across? Well, the big thing was... Um, so we talked about organic growth being kind of the driver for valuation. They were traditionally in the high single digits, so they were in six to eight percent was kind of their long-term project or long-term uh, outlook or goal. And so this um, this meeting this week, they bumped it up to eight to ten percent. Okay. So it's um, and this is a company that's making fourteen expected to make fourteen billion dollars in sales this year. So yep. we're not talking about some small company making additional like. $2 million to get to that growth. You're talking about a very incremental growth to kind of drive that 8 to 10% organic growth. So what did the market, how did the market respond to that? Uh, they were they were up 2%. And so, so far this week, they're still up uh, well. The so what's the driving, is it, what's driving this growth here? I mean, it, is this- They also make, I mean, they do M&A, right? Didn't they just do a deal? Yep. So yeah, they just acquired a company called Relievant, um, which is a procedure in your vertebrae to ablate the nerves to help with um, bat lower back pain, essentially. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like a good thing. But it hurts to even think about yeah, back the procedure. Pain is brutal. My, People say back spine. pain is just the worst. You know, you yeah. Can't yeah. Get rid of it. All right. So what's so what's your call on Boston Scientific? You, well, I think I mean right now it's trading at about. Uh, you can't read those here. numbers. The font oh. on his page. Do you want to use my his, glasses? Of his comp page. <laughs> Here, give me give me this thing. It I mean, is the, the smallest font. font. 
Yeah, that I've it's ever like seen. forget about it. It's, you <laughs> like, can't yeah. read that. It's my little cheat sheet. Yeah, yeah okay, exactly. So, but it's training twenty four times uh, PE. It's got that for eight percent growth. Uh, the call is should be that investor or the analyst, the consensus should be upping their estimates, and that should be getting. You know, normally when you say eight to ten percent, you know the street goes at nine percent. Yep. Right down the middle. If you get that nine percent growth, you should be able to see that multiple go up to something that's more in like a, like the twenty eight times range. And so that's kind of the big call is they kind of you know during the meeting they kept saying the next level, the next level, the next level. Right. Well, if they're able to be able to achieve that growth and get to closer to ten percent versus the eight percent, they'll get to that next level in the multiple. By the way, wait, I mean, who else is there? If I want a stent, I'm probably going to get it from Boston Scientific, right? Well, I mean, yeah. For a stent is a stent is you're going to get um, is either Abbott, Medtronic, or Boston. But those are kind of the slower growing side. This is some of the key growth drivers beside the M and A is going to be the Watchman device. Now, that's a product that's going from like a two billion dollar market to what's a the Watchman billion. device? Watchman is for it's a device that closes the left atrial appendage in the heart, and essentially what it does is that that appendage for people with atrial fibrillation holds blood in that little appendage, it clots, and then it turns into a stroke risk. They close that appendage with this device, and then therefore essentially removing the risk of blood clotting in that appendage and then going up to the brain for a stroke. But did we not need that appendage to begin with? I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, that's what they found out over time is that no, they didn't. It's kind of the same thing as your appendix. You kind of, it's kind of just sticking out there and you don't need it and you can cut it off. They were cutting it off. Now, this is a non-surgical procedure for being really? able to do the same thing. Yeah. All right. So, talk to us just more broadly about the medical device business. What's the investment? I see Boston, you, you mentioned a couple: Abbott, Medtronic. Yep. I know Stryker because I love the name, and they yeah. make uh, you know hips and stuff. Um, Edwards Life Sciences. Yep. They're they're doing heart valves. Yep. So yep. That, that's um, you know, and they're everything. Everything is trying to minimize kind of the openness of surgery. So it's all minimally invasive procedures. I like that. Um, so, you know, you just, the last one was Edwards. They have taken an open heart procedure and have created a technology that you take a catheter and you don't have to open the heart. You can just go straight up through the aorta. It's like, it looks like a little like spy, like in the spy movies, those right. little like cameras, <laughs> yep. like those snakes around. Yeah, it's kind of just like that. And it, delivers the valve and there it's done there. Um, it's been, but the med tech sector has been hit hard because of kind of the GLP trend that's going on. What's the GLP trend? Uh, the GLP drugs that are coming out um, for obesity. What oh, Gova oh. and all those drugs, yes. Uh, we go yeah. we go v and so Ozempic. I would sell a medical device company because I think there's gonna be less procedures because people are gonna be. You're not gonna, you're not gonna be nearly as uh, at risk of a heart attack or stroke if you don't weigh 300 pounds. Yeah, but so if you used to weigh 300 pounds and you go get an Ozempic shot once a week or I don't know, once a month, however it works. Sometimes it's daily. Or, yeah. or they'll, and, they're uh, yeah, coming out yeah. with pill forms as yeah, well. Yeah. So if, if you can take these drugs and get into better shape, you're not going to need a stent. Really? That's, that's, the, that's the thesis going on right wow. now. Wow. But I mean, there's there's a lot of Caveats too. There's uh, Zimmer Biomet, for example. That's another orthopedic company like Stryker. Their CEO came out and said, "Hey, some of these patients who were too obese for surgery, if they take these weight loss drugs, ah. then they'll be healthy enough to get their knee replacement or to get their hip replacement." Uh, and then the other thing too is, you know, there's data coming out. I mean, the diabetes companies have been trying to fight back hard on this, but they're showing data that these patients who are taking these GLPs, these weight loss drugs. 
they're they're not taking them after a year. They're not taking them after two years. So it's you know, and it's something where. But they keep the weight off. No. So these they try these. They drugs. don't keep the weight off. No, and half of these patients are lo- like just dropping out after a year, or even more. After what? So they lose years. weight. They lose weight for a year, and then they're like, nah, I liked being well, fat. Well, I I, I I I see it as like, do you want to keep? you know injecting yourself with this every single day or even once a week it's a, you know it's a it's it's a lot and it's, yeah but so is being obese yeah so <laughs> i then, would probably rather object inject myself I pro- probably but i also at the same time if you keep injecting yourself and then you know there is bariatric surgery as kind of that you know safe safety net there then you're gonna like well, this would be I interesting to hear if i mean i wonder if bariatric surgery is better or worse, like the, the belt, the loop, the, the, the band. Stamp of the yeah. in, in terms of keep, like in terms stable, of losing yeah. the weight and keeping it off, I wonder which one's better, longer term, Ozempic. Well, we're going to hear, hear more about that kind yeah. of in this third quarter call, and so that's going to be intuitive surgical, and that's going to be Medtronic, and yeah, it's a it's a stay tuned type of dude. Moment. What a fascinating industry to cover. It is. Yeah. It uh, is. It's good stuff. I mean, the whole healthcare space is just you got to. It's just it's never going away. It's always a gr- growth industry. You're always going to have a job if you're in the healthcare. Well, industry. and lately I've been looking at like pictures of FDR or pictures oh, of Walt I know. Disney. They look like a hundred years old, and they no. died when they were sixty. Matt Hendrickson, no? senior equity analyst, covering all the med tech space for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship. New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's look at the M&A front here. We're at a big M&A trade. Looks like it actually might close. Microsoft, Activision, $69 billion. Um, We got some approval, I think, from the UK's regulatory body. That was kind of the last one to fall. Jennifer Reed joins us. She's a senior litigation analyst. She focuses on antitrust. It's just right down her alley. She does that all for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Jen, what did the UK authorities uh, rule here on this Microsoft uh, Activision deal? Well, Paul, at long last, it finally looks like this deal is going to close. Um, What they have said is that a new remedy that Microsoft proposed uh, about a month ago or so is probably sufficient to cure the concerns they had about the deal, that it looks likely that it's sufficient. This is a provisional decision. And so what they will do now is listen to comments by interested public, uh, other entities that participate in the market, and then at some point after October 6th issue a final ruling. But really, Paul, this is called provisional, but this is it. I mean, they're going to ultimately clear this deal. There's no doubt in my mind. The weird thing to me was, if you're going to do a big M&A transaction, I get that you need to have the U.S. regulators approve it. Right. And I get, because right. it's a massive market, I get that you're going to have to have Europe approve it. But England? <laughs> do they really matter that much anymore? <laughs> Well, I guess they do now. (laughs) They've made a big splash in the antitrust world. You know, the UK used to be part of the European Union before Brexit. So it it didn't really issue its own opinions with respect to these big global mergers that were big enough to trigger European Commission review. You know, there might have been other deals that actually did trigger just only UK review in which the UK was still involved. But for the most part, when you had these big acquisitions like Microsoft Activision, you didn't have the UK independently involved. And now they are. And I think they really want to flex their muscles. They want sure. to show that they're 
they are a real antitrust regulator. I mean, I'm obviously uh, that comment is tongue in cheek. So if you're British and you're offended, please don't <laughs> email my boss. They do have 67 million people, but again, it's only 67 right. million people in the UK. Um, what other regulators do I have to worry about? Am I am yeah, I going to the to... Indonesian regulator? Yeah. They have a lot of people. What about <laughs> India? Do they look at the M and A uh, deal? You know. You know. You know what? People don't know this, but I'll tell you what. When these deals get filed, sometimes they're filed with over 100 jurisdictions. There are, they could be fire, filed in Azerbaijan. There are so many jurisdictions with competition authorities. So, you know, there's a whole group within these law firms that have to assess every single jurisdiction globally where a deal has to get filed, where it might trigger the thresholds for that country or that jurisdiction. But in reality, the, the jurisdictions that really have the law behind them and I think the will to actually block a deal are primarily the U.S., EU, China, and now U.K. Yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, I was, saw some reporting, Jen, um, which kind of goes to what you said, to the, the way you were talking about, about the U.K. And the U.K. says, hey, you know, we're going to kind of prove this one here, but you better be careful what you bring to us because we're going to be we're not going to be a pushover here. So. I guess right. that if you're an antitrust M&A lawyer, you got to keep that into account these days. You know, absolutely. I think it's getting harder and harder. I mean, just the fact that the, the FTC and DOJ are changing a lot of rules, making it more onerous, actually, to notify the deal to the regulators, more expensive as well, um, and have these extended review timelines and are, have become very unpredictable. Now you have to deal also with this unpredictable CMA in the UK. And I think that it, it just adds to the uncertainty of deals. It makes it harder and harder for the merger arbitragers to actually you know, do what they do. Um, and I think you know, what I'm thinking about right now is the Adobe Figma deal, because I wonder what the UK is going to do on that one. It's moved into a phase two on it. And I could see the UK actually being one of those regulators that tries to block that deal. Hey, Jen, I mean, on the banking side, we usually charged a percentage of the deal size as, as our fee, and that got negotiated up front, that percentage. How does it work on the on the legal side? Is it still all about hours, <laughs> billable hours? So, I mean, a case like this with all the antitrust must have been a just a juicy, yeah, juicy deal for the lawyers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's all about hours. And I'll tell you, the attorneys log some serious hours. When these jurisdictions go into those in-depth investigations, they are rigorous. They take a lot of work. I mean, that's what I spent most of my legal practice doing, was responding to these second requests from the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice. And they ask for a lot of data, a lot of information, uh, a lot of responses to questions. There are depositions. There are um, interviews of company executives. It takes a lot of time. And when it's so protracted, like Microsoft Activision, with appeals and going to court, it is expensive. Those lawyers did very well. By the way, on that note, and kind of an aside, but do you round up to the nearest hour? I mean, if you're if you're driving home to Westchester and you're a lawyer for one of these cases and somebody calls you from the company to talk about it and it's a, like a five minute conversation, is that one billable hour? No, no, no. I, I will say that every law firm has different rules about what becomes a billable hour and what doesn't become a billable hour. I can only vouch for the firm I work for, which was very careful about these things, and a five-minute call would not have been a billable hour. Um, but if those five-minute calls start to add up, you know, maybe you have a billable hour there. Uh, and it also sometimes depends on how much the, the legal counsel within the company push back on those bills, because they do and they can, and 
know, so in my experience, it's been well. quarter hours. You get billed for a, like a five minute phone call. You'd get billed a quarter hour. Right. Well, that so, makes right. more With sense. Some law firms, yeah. And, and Jen, how about the senior partner just devolved away from Michigan? I mean, uh, <laughs> Microsoft. Microsoft to just kind of how they make money. So the senior partners at these white shoe New York law firms, do they still have to bill hours or do they just take a salary? Oh, no, they bill hours. Everybody oh, bills hours. And it, yeah, no, they bill hours and it goes to the client. I mean, look, I haven't been practicing law now for about eight years, but as far as I know, things haven't changed. And wow. the, the senior partners have to keep the calendar just the same way the associates do and log all their time, bill their hours. That is Absolutely. just no way to live a life, right? Yeah, I feel like the bankers may have it figured out, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I don't know. They, the lawyers do just fine as far as I can tell. Yeah. All right, Jen, thanks so much uh, for joining us, giving us Thank a little you. primer on how to how you earn your money as, in the law firm. So you bill hours, I guess. Jennifer Ree, senior litigation analyst uh, covering the antitrust What do you think an angle? hour costs at, a, at one of the top white shoe law firms? Oh, boy, I don't know, 500 an hour, $1,000 an hour? Definitely over 1000 Over 1000 wow. I think. Uh, all right, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I would break down my deal fee into hours. I don't know how that would look. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.